Hi, this is Andrew Wall, director of the Fantasy Makers and the Science Fiction Makers. You're listening to Pints with Jack. That part of the line where I thought I could serve best was also the part that seemed to be thinnest. And to it, I naturally went. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 12, Planets in Peril. After Hours with Dr. David C. Downing. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. My opening quotation for this episode comes from the preface of Mere Christianity. And my reason for selecting this passage should become a little clearer as we hear about the genesis of the book, which we'll be discussing in a moment. Because today my interview is with returning guest to the show, Dr. David C. Downing. Over the course of the next hour, I'm going to be picking Dr. Downing's brain about what we need to know in order to get the most out of our reading of Out of the Silent Planet, as well as the other books in the series. For those of you who are unfamiliar with him, Dr. David C. Downing is a graduate from Westmont College, and he earned his PhD from UCLA. He is co-director with his wife, Crystal, of the Marin E. Wade Center at Wheaton College in Illinois, and he is co-host of their podcast. He has written several books on Lewis, including a biography, Most Reluctant Convert, a novel about the Inklings, Looking for the King, a study of Lewis's reading in Christian mysticism, Into the Region of Awe, as well as the book which we'll be talking about today, Planets in Peril, a critical study of C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy. Dr. David C. Downing, welcome back to Pints with Jack. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be back. I have to say that I'm a little uncomfortable with that phrase, uh, picking my brain. It sounds a little (laughs) macabre, but uh, I I get the idea. As long as it's a feast, I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) I do have to tell you about something which happened a couple of weeks ago with my son. So the backstory is he loves lions, absolutely loves them. And we have a little plastic lion that uh, he insisted joined our nativity set. So you have Aslan and Jesus in the same scene. And whenever we take him past it, he roars or growls. And it's the same whenever he sees a picture of a lion, uh, when we're reading a book, or if somebody just says lion at some point. And the other day, I came into my office and I was holding him and he just started roaring. And I looked around. The lion wasn't here. There weren't any books open. And then I saw what was on my computer screen. It was the graphic for today's episode with your face on the front of it. And I think my son saw your golden locks and your golden beard and assumed you were a lion. So (laughs) I just wanted to share that with you because I just thought that was wonderful. (laughs) I'll I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, we give a lot of tours at the Wade Center. We have the wardrobe that Lewis had in his home in Ireland. So I was going through the storyline where Lucy goes through the wardrobe and no one believes her. Talks a little bit about the wardrobe. As the as the uh, second graders are leaving, this little girl said, sometimes I tell the truth and my parents don't believe me. And I said, well, the more you uh, tell the truth, the more they'll learn to trust you. And she said, well, thank you for believing Lucy. And then she walked away. And I'd been produced as <laughs> Professor Downing. So I think she told her parents, I didn't meet Aslan, but I did meet the professor. So uh, that's that's two characters I've got covered so far, it sounds like. <laughs> Wonderful. I love it. Oh, well, uh, let's toast. Today, I'm enjoying a nice latte. Are you drinking anything? I have a uh, frappuccino. Fancy. With uh, coffee, cream, preservatives. Every one of these I drink shortens my life by 20 minutes, I believe. (laughs) No, it's a preservative. It'll just keep you alive. 
Well, today we are toasting a top tier supporter, Matt Nash, and I'm going to do it exclusively using titles from Dr. Downing's various books. So Matt, we pray that you would draw closer to the Lord in 2023. We pray that you would not be a most reluctant convert, but by looking for the king, you'll enter into the region of awe. Cheers. Cheers. So let's begin by going back in time. The year is 1992. I was in junior school, struggling through my second year of Latin. And at that point in time, there wasn't much in-depth commentary available on the Ransom Trilogy. But then your book, Planets in Peril, was released. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about Ransom Trilogy studies in general, as well as the story of how this book came about? Well, I agree with you that there wasn't much in depth about the Ransom Trilogy before Planets in Peril. I was at UCLA, and uh, I had a Christian professor named George Tennyson, who uh, writes a lot about or wrote a lot about Owen Barfield. And I was complaining about the distinction between literary fiction and popular fiction. Uh, after modernism, there's this very strong sense of this is the literary canon. This is who you can study in grad school. And these are popular writers. And by definition, science fiction was popular. Mm. So you studied uh, in 20th century British, you studied James Joyce, D.H. Lawrence, Virginia Woolf, those sort of authors. But you didn't study any science fiction. You didn't study Isaac Asimov or, or you know, Robert Heinlein or C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien. So I said, I think you could make a case that Lewis's Ransom Trilogy is serious literary fiction. Uh, it's not just beach reading or airport reading. And my professor said, well, why don't you write that book? Why don't you prove that it's literary fiction? And uh, I thought it was a good idea, but it took me about a decade to get to the project. <laughs> Once I got a full-time job as a professor, you're preparing classes and grading papers and all that. So it took me about 10 years to take up his challenge, but I originally wrote it primarily to show that this, and now it's in college syllabuses all over the place. Uh, and there's been four or five book-length studies of the Ransom Trilogy. So I do feel um, I did a service to people by getting them to take it much more seriously than they had been. I had trouble getting it published, uh, University of Massachusetts, because one of the readers said, oh, this is great. This is illuminating. I think it'll really be helpful. The other reader was clearly not sympathetic to C.S. Lewis. And he wrote a long thing saying, Lewis is not a serious fiction writer. He had all these obsolete opinions. And even though he was a professor, he was full of all kinds of ancient superstitions. And he said, if you're going to write a book at all about C.S. Lewis, it should be an expose of all of his shortcomings. It shouldn't be an appreciation. <laughs> So I had to write a long letter in defense of Lewis and saying, we want a spectrum of opinion on our authors. We don't want everything to be coming from the same direction. And the, the editor wrote me back and said, comparing his critique and your response, I see that you understand C.S. Lewis much better than he does. <laughs> so they published the book. This, this reader also said, uh, even uh, devoted fans of Lewis will find very little of interest in this book. And I disagreed. Mm. And uh, my editor has since told me, it's been out for 30 years now. He said it's the longest selling and best selling book in their catalog at University of Massachusetts. Wow. So I keep wishing I could meet Reader B. <laughs> I told them, P.S., if Reader B ever submits a book manuscript, I'd be happy to review it for you. <laughs> so it was, it was a bit of a labor to get it into print, but it's... Uh, I think it, it definitely does have a place in terms of helping people get through the trilogy and getting more out of it. Mm. 
And your book is dedicated to Crystal. Uh, was this before she became Mrs. Dr. Downing? Or put another way, did you dedicate this to your girlfriend or wife? No, she was already my wife. Uh, so okay. I am old. So we'd been married for several years by the time this book came out. My favorite epigraph to Crystal is from my book, Into the Region of Awe, that says, for Crystal who blends the love of wisdom with the wisdom of love. I think that's my <laughs> best epigraph. Wow. Husbands out there, please take note. <laughs> In our first episode this season, we mentioned the parallels between Ransom and Tolkien, because particularly of the background of the, the bet, the agreement between Lewis and Tolkien, one would write a space book, one would write a time travel book. Uh, however, in your book, you point out that there are many parallels between Ransom and Lewis. What are they? Tolkien made a comment kind of casually that he saw many of his ideas Lewisified in Out of the Silent Planet. He helped uh, Lewis get it published. At that time, Tolkien was already established because of The Hobbit. And uh, Tolkien wrote a very insightful letter of uh, evaluation of Out of the Silent Planet, sent it to a publisher. But I do think the character of Ransom uh, is much more similar to Lewis himself than to Tolkien. He's a bachelor. Tolkien had four children, was married and had four children. Uh, he was a very strong anti-vivisectionist. Lewis wrote uh, essays about not performing experiments on animals, and we see what that's like in that hideous strength. Hmm. Now, he's a Christian. Of course, Tolkien and he were both Christians. He says he's handy in the kitchen. And Mrs. Moore, Lewis's adoptive mother, often had him doing housework and kitchen work. <laughs> and uh, Warren complained that, that that time could be spent on writing. But I think there's nothing better to uh, develop creative ideas than when you're doing kind of simple manual labor. Mm. So I think I disagree with, uh, with Warren that that was not time well spent. He says Cambridge rather than uh, Oxford, and he makes him a linguist. But Lewis explained in a letter that the only reason he made him a linguist is so he could pick up Malachandrian very quickly. He could figure out the language. So I think the similarities with Lewis are much more, even a lot of biographical details. As you dive into Lewis's letters and biographical, uh, his memoir, Surprised by Joy, when Lewis's mother died, uh, he said there was a Shakespeare calendar on the wall that day that said, uh, men must endure their going hence, ripeness is all. And then there's a funeral service for the the uh, the dead Harasa, and in their dirge or their lament, they say, "Let it go hence, let it go hence, let it be no body." So those little details tend to refer back to things that only Lewis would remember or be a part of his consciousness. And listeners, you're already starting to see why I love Dr. Downing's books, as he drops these little things that you just read through and didn't think twice about them. And you then discover that there is a deep connection both to Lewis and the, the his life events and books that he read. So in the first chapter of your book, you spend some time talking about Lewis's life. How does this affect our reading of Out of the Silent Planet? And in so doing, are we committing the personal heresy? Well, I would say yes on the biographical context being helpful. And I would say uh, if I committed to personal heresy. I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> All heretics say that. Lewis was primarily, in, in his book, The Personal Heresy, he's primarily interested, or he's primarily critiquing critics who go past the text to say, oh, here's the Freudian complexes of the offer. They must have had a, a daddy problem or repressed impulses. And so they're not really reading the text. They're saying, I'm the therapist and the author's is my patient, <laughs> or else there were a lot of Marxist criticism 
which was when we read Dickens, the real point is the class struggle and everyone is is trying to strive to, to do better. And they're not really reading the text as a literary text. They're reading it as a document for some thesis of theirs, which is not strictly speaking literary. But Lewis himself was open to biographical context. He does it in his book on Milton. He talks about Milton. He really liked a book by Carolyn Spurgeon on uh, Shakespeare's use of imagery and how that came from his own consciousness in his time period of King James. So Lewis himself was willing to use biographical information to enrich your understanding of the text. He just didn't like you using the text for non-literary purposes. I just read an essay of his called The Anthropological Approach, in which critics are reading uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and they say, oh, Gawain seems to be based on some sort of a, a god figure because he rises in the morning or a sun god, and the Green Knight seems to be the, the green man or some kind of vegetation god. And Lewis says, well, I see how literature helps anthropologists understand their subject, but I don't see how anthropology helps literary critics understand their subject. We're taking the uh, the more clear in literature and we're interpreting it in terms of the less clear, which is the speculative folklore behind the story. Yeah, so he always wanted you to look at the text, not to look through the text at the author or the culture behind it. And if listeners would like to hear some more commentary on the anthropological approach, if you go to pintswithjack.com slash essays and search for that essay, you'll see that there's a link there to the Wade Center podcast where you can hear the Downings talk about it in more detail. Let's just return, though, to Lewis's life. What is it that people need to know or at least remember about Lewis's life as they come to Out of the Silent Planet? How does it illuminate it? Well, once again, there's a lot of details. I mentioned the, uh, his mother's death at nine, which is very traumatic for him. He considered his childhood uh, before his mother died as being a kind of paradise. He considered it an, an Eden that was innocent but insecure. And even at Alice Island Planet, when he first lands on Mars, he says it was like a child's watercolor. And there was a like a pale blue winter sky. When you read his memoirs, letters, his favorite season was winter. And he loved drawing, even as an adult, he loved drawing in the margins of his pictures. And he saved all his childhood pictures. So when you see him use the word child, it almost always takes him back to the innocence and the wonder of the time before his mother died and he went off to school. When you see the word boyhood, that he, he didn't like boarding schools. At one point, he uh, threatened to shoot himself unless his father took him out of boarding school. And he saw boys and schools as noisy and competitive, lacking in wonder, lacking in uh, true camaraderie. And throughout his books, he has special terminology that he applies differently than most people. And it becomes clearest when you read Surprised by Joy. Childhood is always a good thing. He even uses the word childish as a good trait. Normally, we think of childish as being selfish or bratty. And he always uses boyhood as a negative trait. He'll say materialism is for men or still more boys uh, who can't imagine. So he actually go that direction in terms of boys. In Paralandra, when he's trying to convince Weston to confess his sins, he says, well, say a child's prayer if you can't say a man's. So the main reason I went through Surprised by Joy, A, he wrote it. So he's inviting the personal heresy. It's one thing to <laughs> go back to someone's hometown and dig up all these details about their childhood, like people do for Mark Twain or 
or other authors. But he gave us a memoir with a lot of clues as to the way he, the way he thought, even the way he uses language. He says, I was a pagan living among uh, obsolete Christians or something of that sort. And you think pagan, oh, that means you party a lot, you know, pagan. But by pagan, he means classical writers. He means pre-Christian. He says paganism was the, the childhood of Christianity. And then you see both words that way. It's, it's a good thing. And he says, when people ask what happened to pagans, well, a lot of them became Christians. That's what happened to them. They matured into being Christians. So I think one of the main things that I benefited from was noticing how he uses languages and also his explicit organizing of his memoir according to the search for joy, the search for sin sucked. We all have these feelings of inconsolable longing. It's as, as if we know that paradise is out there, but we've been cast out of paradise. And he thought that was a major clue to Christian faith, that we're all homesick for heaven without knowing it. So I tried to pick out those motifs from Surprised by Joy and apply them not only to uh, the Ransom Trilogy, but most of those word choices and attitudes also show up in Narnia and Till We Have Faces. Mm-hmm. He was very consistent that way. So much read a book called The Lewis Lexicon, in which you would take all these words that had a specialized meaning for him. And to make sure that you're understanding the way he used the word rather than maybe the dictionary definition. Mm. It's funny you should say that because I actually had the Walter Hooper C.S. Lewis encyclopedia arrive today. Um, and I intend to use it for exactly that purpose, to be able to look up what particular associations there are with such terms. Yeah, that that's a great resource. He wrote one called C.S. Lewis Companion and Guide. Has that been renamed the C.S. Lewis Encyclopedia? I think it may have changed titles. No, I it, I just have a very poor short-term memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an excellent reference source. He does he summarizes all the books and then he gives what the reviewer said about them. Then he gives a mini biography of Lewis, which is very concise and helpful. And then he goes into who's who, who are all the key people in Lewis's mm-hmm. life, and what's what, what concepts were lifelong paradigms for Lewis. So I'm glad you brought up that book. That's one of uh, Walter Hooper's greatest services to C.S. Lewis studies is putting together that, that reference source. Mm. And it was kind of difficult to get as well. So it was well worth the find. Now, earlier in the season, I read Jack's letter to Sister Penelope about smuggling theology past watchful dragons. Right. And you devote the second chapter of your book to the Christian vision of the trilogy. What do you see as the chief theological ideas Lewis wanted to communicate? Well, something I wanted to do in in, uh, Narnia, as well as the Ransom Trilogy, is to get people to shake off this kind of sacred stupor. They know the general Christian story, the incarnation, the, uh, the crucifixion, but it's become stale for them. So he wrote to Sister Penelope and says only two out of 60 reviewers knew that there was anything going on besides an adventure story set uh, on the planet Mars. And he says, if someone had enough talent and time, they could (laughs) smuggle any amount of theology under the guise of romance without people knowing it. And even though he said it's someone else should do it, that's what he's doing. You slowly realize that when you first pick up the uh, book out of the silent planet, you assume that the silent planet must be Pluto or some dead, you know, meteorite way off. And slowly it dawns on you that we, Earth, we're the silent planet. Mm. The archon or the uh, the tutelary spirit who's supposed to be the ruler of our planet has rebelled against Meleldil. And so uh, Venus, Perilandra, and Mars, Malacandra, they're still in fellowship. They're still part of the, the uh, chain of being that leads up to Meleldil. And 
uh, it's always interesting when I teach the class, when it, I don't give them much background, and suddenly students go, no, wait a minute. There's Meleldil the Elder and Meleldil the Younger. And the, the Archon of the Oyarsa of Mars says, uh, we've been longing to look into what Meleldil is doing to try to rescue the silent planet, Sulcandra. And you suddenly go, well, that's Christian theology. Mm-hmm. It's very medieval. Each planet has its own tutelary spirit. I even like when uh, the Oyarsa says to Ransom, these are things into which we long to look. And you remember from the Bible where it says these are things in which angels long to look. Mm. That's another little clue that the Oyarsa is an archangel. So he definitely wanted you to say the reason there's so much war and strife and injustice on earth is we're the fallen planet. And even a Christian like Ransom, he's full of anxiety and distrust because he spent his whole world in rebel territory. Lewis is more or less saying we're like uh, occupied France during World War II. Our, our whole lives have been very constricted by being controlled by the enemy. He even expects Malachandra to be full of horrors and monsters and all that kind of thing. And when he gets there, it's an unfallen world. So even these strange creatures are actually you know, good creatures, trusting creatures, creatures in uh, fellowship with Maleldil. So very slowly, he gives you a science fiction premise, which turns into Christian theology. He did the same thing, obviously, with Narnia again. What if God came to a planet as, as a lion rather than a human, but still had to perform a sacrifice for the, the fallen? And I think it's very clever. When I first read Paralandra, his Eldils are angels, but they don't appear with wings and halos and harps. They're these kind of footsteps of light or these little pillars of light that you can only see out of your peripheral vision. I was reading it at the library when I was at Westmont. I was walking back in the moonlight and the moonlight was filtering through the leaves. And I had the strongest feeling that I was surrounded by Eldils. So he really wants to work on your imagination, not hammer away at your intellect. And I think it's a the reason we're talking about it all these years later is it's it's a very successful strategy. Hmm. Now you mentioned that this was a medieval conception with uh, a, a guardian angel of each planet, and you devote chapter three of your book to the elements of classicalism and medievalism in the trilogy. What are some more of these elements, and more importantly, why do they matter? <laughs> well, Lewis wrote a whole book called uh, the. Uh, discarded image about the medieval worldview. And he says that cosmology was actually the greatest work of art that came out of the medieval era. This idea of Earth is at the center, and then you have the planets, and then you have the fixed stars, and then you have the realm of Empyrean, which means the realm of fire. And Lewis felt that even though it's not literally true, it was emotionally a much more satisfying way to, to be in the cosmos than the way moderns are. Moderns think of the cosmos as dark and cold and endless, and Earth is just a, a, a point of almost no value or significance in that huge cosmos. Whereas the medievals, when they looked at the sky, instead of looking out at darkness, they thought they were looking at the ceiling of a cathedral. They thought you were looking up into space. It has a beautiful passage at the end of Discarded Image where he says, it's, it's clear by now that I'm totally in love with the medieval view of the cosmos it has one major flaw. It's not true. <laughs> and then he goes on to talk about how we all create systems to try to uh, account for all the facts we know. But he ends up by saying, moderns do that as much as uh, the medievals did. We all have a 
Right now, they're studying the cosmos and getting all these fabulous images from the Hubble telescope, which does seem to make the Earth full of light and space and illumination. It's not dark and cold when you look at it in the right way. But Lewis has a very incisive critique of the modern worldview. Everything we talk about in cosmology is about 5% of the known universe. And then there's dark energy and dark matter. And that sounds like it's something we understand, but all it means is mystery X is why do galaxies cohere? Why don't they all fly apart? And mystery Y is why are the, is the cosmos, why are things getting faster as they go on the edge of the cosmos? And so people have kind of a comfortable view that we sort of figured out the cosmos. But every once in a while, a physicist will admit, well, we, we kind of understand about 5%. We understand matter and light. We don't know what's going on with the other 95%. So he makes a call for humility. And he says the medieval worldview was theologically true. We are alien. There is a benign God who created the cosmos and who created us. There's been at least one rebellion, Adam and Eve, or every human who has Adam and Eve in them. Lewis played with the idea that there were two rebellions. The reason there's so much suffering on earth is because of Lucifer's rebellion. And that led to a lot of just natural evil. And But then there's also human evil. So Lewis felt that we joined the wrong side. And it's, it's a fascinating, he's trying to give us a new myth to think about the, our worldview rather than the materialist myth that everything can ultimately be explained by uh, uh, light and particles and, and something physical. Mm. And what you said there reminded me of mere Christianity when he says that we wouldn't think much of a Frenchman who said that they were on the Allied side only once Allied tanks were rolling into France. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he actually used a lot of World War II metaphors. When you, I'm kind of a World War II buff, and I'm, I notice how often he sneaks in something about the war to illustrate his point. Mm. It kind of makes sense because it's the most vivid example of evil and destruction of their generation. Right. Well, he'll even take a convoy. During the war, they tried to get like 50 merchant ships together guarded by escorts or destroyers. And uh, he says, well, uh, ethics is like a convoy. You have to have your own engine and rudder in good shape to stay in line, but you have to be properly spaced from the other ships in the convoy, but you have to be going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. You know, it wouldn't be any good if the convoy ended up in Berlin. <laughs> I don't know where. So it, it's such a clever illustration of ethics, those three dimensions of ethics. Although the last time I tried to teach that to my students, they said, what's a convoy? <laughs> so some of this material gets dated no matter how hard you try to uh, keep it relevant. And uh, ethics is like Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We need newer metaphors, yeah. Mm. Now, speaking of evil there, you devote an entire chapter to portraits of evil. And since we've now read enough of Out of the Silent Planet, how does Lewis paint the evil Western and divine? How, how are those portraits also different? Well, they are very typical of Lewis villains because they don't understand the sanctity of life, either in humans or in, in animals. So they're willing to experiment on animals. Poor Tartar, the dog, apparently has, has been dismissed early in the story. <laughs> they don't appreciate the sanctity of life. The exact same thing with Narnia villains. They use hellish oaths. They'll say, oh, hell, or I'm not going to do this, this infernal business. Even that name Tartar is, you know, an infernal image. Mm, Tartarus. They don't respect the humanities. They always think the only road to truth is science rather than humanity. And going along with science is technology. Divine wants to develop the planet. He says there's an industrial side. He wants to get money of something he finds that uh, 
at Malacandra, probably gold or herbal's blood. Yeah, at one point, Divine is more of a greedy businessman, but he's very slick and uh, uh, well-spoken. He's like a James Bond villain. Whereas Weston is much more of this cracked brain visionary. He wants to take the human species and conquer other planets. And Lewis actually, it sounds far-fetched, but he read a number of people in his time. They were, in a way, I would say they anticipate Elon Musk. They say uh, people like J.B.S. Haldane, uh, the Cambridge scientist, he may be a model for Weston. I wouldn't be surprised if he was. One of the critics, the anthropological critics that Lewis didn't like was named Jesse Weston. So uh, if you uh, disagree with the critic, write a novel in which you use their name for one of the villains. <laughs> they also, uh, well, as I say, they don't care about the humanities. They only care about science and technology. There's an interesting line where uh, they have this concept of the Hanau uh, to have to be made in the image of God. Lewis borrowed it from the Greek word nous, which means mind. And at one point he tells the Malacandrians, well, Weston is only half an owl, and actually the worst of the two is divine. We would tend to say Weston is worse because he seems more ruthless, but he does have a moral uh, vision. He wants to help humanity, whereas divine is totally self-centered and selfish. So uh, he's got neither the rational side nor the moral side, which we associate with being made in the image of God. What else should I mention? I, I think I mentioned the oaths, the dismissal of humanities, the uh, not caring for the sanctity of life. In Paralandra, we meet Weston again, and there's a very chilling image of his grabbing these Paralandrian frogs and just using his fingernail to cut them open. And it's just this kind of mindless disregard of the, the value of any kind of life. Uh, I feel like I have a couple more on my list, but I don't remember what they are right now. <laughs> When I first read about Weston, I was actually put in mind of what Lewis says in Mere Christianity, which I think he stole from Chesterton in Orthodoxy, about virtues run amok. Basically, that if you just take right. one value, one impulse, and make that one king, right. it's going to ruin everything. And that's exactly what he does. He has a noble goal, but the real problem is he's willing to do anything. And he, sa he right. says that very explicitly. I will do anything to make this happen. Also, in Abolition of Man, the Tao is this whole... Uh tapestry of moral threads, love of country, love of family, uh, altruism. But if you just pull out one thread, for Weston, it's humanity, or what he would consider to be the human family. Michael Ward calls it a moral ecology, that all of these moral principles are interwoven, and you can't just pick out one and say, this is my only morality, or else you're going to end up being like, even the Nazis with eugenics, they claim they're improving the human gene pool, but then they're guilty of in unspeakable atrocities. Mm. Each season on Pints with Jack, we do one of the Narnian Chronicles, and rather appropriately, we're working on The Magician's Nephew this season. Right. And there is something of a parallel between Jadis and Uncle Andrew and Weston and Divine. There is. The only difference is, is that you've just replaced science with magic, which Lewis says those things are basically twins anyway. Right. That's another uh, one of those words for the Lewis lexicon. The word magic, it's only acceptable if it's Aslan's magic. If this some, something which we can't explain according to ordinary technology or reason, if Aslan does it, the deeper magic, it's okay. But if you're a magician, he says the old wisdom was uh, to conform your will to reality. 
but the new wisdom is to try to make reality conform to your will, either through technology or magic. And he does say technology thrived because it worked and magic didn't thrive because it didn't work. But the magician's nephew, everything I said earlier about villains that also fits uh, Jadis and Uncle Andrew, as soon as they see Aslan, they hate the beautiful sounds he's making. This wonder exalted view of creation. And uh, she wants, they wish they had a gun to shoot it and she throws a metal rod at it. There's this immediate antipathy spiritually between good and evil. He also swears. He says she was a damn fine woman. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Lewis in a children's book couldn't put a damn fine woman. But it's interesting to take kind of not very comical villains from the, out of the silent planet and realize how similar they are to more comical vil- villains like Uncle Andrew. Mm. I mean, Uncle Andrew, his first thought when he reaches Narnia is, oh, I can make some money here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just divine. And that's what Edmund, in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund is saying, oh, I could develop cinemas and highways, and he wants <laughs> industrial development. Both Lewis and Tolkien considered industrial development almost intrinsically evil. Uh, Tolkien would write <laughs> papers to the letter, I mean, write letters to the newspaper saying, why did they pave this road? It was perfectly good as a dirt road. And of course, the cutting down of trees was, you know, a great evil in, in Tolkien, especially. But at one point, Ransom says, I gave the Malachandrians the whole sordid history of Earth's wars and industrialisms. And it's funny to me that he puts wars and industrialisms as these kind of twin evils that you're trying to stay away from. Mm. Seeing both of them as very destructive. Now, one of my favorite things on the Way Center podcast is what I mentioned before, that you unpack all the influences on Lewis's work. And you devote a chapter of that in your book. Uh, what would you say are the important models, influences, and echoes in Out of the Silent Planet? Well, oddly enough, he was critiquing H.G. Wells and J.B.S. Haldane and others who had this uh, Christianity. I mean, it was called evolutionism. We've evolved to this point of being humans. Let's keep on evolving and become almost like gods. And we'll go to other planets and maybe we'll live forever. And he, Lewis called it Wellsianity because H.G. Wells <laughs> preached that quite a bit in his stories. He wrote a story called First Men in the Moon, where these two men, one a scientist and one a businessman, go to the moon, and they get in trouble, and they're dragged before the ruler of the moon and tells them, you know, they need to leave and go back to their planet. He, his stories usually had underlying socialistic themes. He was H.G. Wells had a great deal of confidence that social evolution was leading to socialism, that eventually the whole world would be a place where there was no private property, there was only communal sharing of all resources. And uh, Lewis considered that a dangerous concept because often you have people in the name of community or in the name of the people, they're just creating a new oligarchy, you know, you have a new elite. So he actually took a Wellsian plot and transposed it to Mars but then he had a very anti-Wellsian theme. Uh, Weston is clearly a crackpot. He's not a, a serious social planner. Uh, so there's a lot of H.G. Wells in there, even little details like hearing all these meteorites bouncing off the ship and having this mysterious propulsion uh, that you can't really explain. Uh, both Tolkien and Lewis criticized H.G. Wells for saying, well, we found a new mineral called somethingite, and we use the, the somethingite, but it doesn't give any kind of... So Lewis was was kind of equally glib. He says, well, we're using some of the less observed properties of gravity, or what is less observed? Some kind of light. 
solar radiation? It, it's a very uh, kind of facile explanation to do sci-fi. Some people say the difference between fantasy and sci-fi is that sci-fi, you have to give plausible explanations. Even it's though it's not a science we have now, you have to say they traveled through a wormhole or they did this. Whereas fantasy, you just say, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. I'm not going to try to explain it to you. Or she went to the Narnia and there was a fawn. Uh, so Lewis, sometimes he gave a tip of the hat to science fiction. But uh, by the time he gets to Paralandra, he just takes ransom to Venus via a coffin, which is being transported by an, an Eldil. H.G. Wells, uh, he liked uh, Gulliver's travels. Gulliver meets these this utopian society where they're all horses. And they start out a lot of their words with H's. So when we meet the Harasa and they talk about the Handrament and uh, they call him, they talk about Haman, that initial H sound, I'm pretty sure he borrowed from Gulliver's Travels. As I mentioned, there's a lot of uh, Miltonic Christianity, the idea that the sky is bright and illuminated and full of wonder and radiance as opposed to being dark and cold. He got that idea from Milton. Uh, that's part of the fun of doing research is in um, Magician's Nephew, when all the animals start popping out of the earth, like a, some kind of a, a broth, which is bubbling up. Mm -hmm. He got that straight out of Paradise Lost. That's where creation comes from in Paradise Lost. So sometimes we give him too much credit for creativity. He's actually doing strategic borrowing from his favorite authors. Well, that's, that's just research, isn't it? If you just steal from one source, it's plagiarism. If you steal from lots of sources, it's research. That's right, that's right. Someone said to be original, doesn't mean that you didn't imitate anyone. It means that no one can imitate you. Mm. And that's a good point. Most of Shakespeare's uh, narratives, most of his plays were based on existing storylines. Mm -hmm. He just made them a lot better than his sources did. <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're all mostly very similar. There's just like one plot point that changes. Romeo and Juliet and Much to Do About Nothing is, what if the message didn't get through about the sleeping drug? Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, that's true. It makes for a lot better story, though, don't you think? Yeah. Well, at the time of recording, we just recorded our episode where we discussed Chapter 2 of Out of the Silent Planet, where Ransom has his dream about the walled garden, and we had some spirited discussion as to what it meant. What do you make of it? Well, I can only speculate. Sometimes I feel sure I know what's going on, as when it, they talk about the Hanau, I'm sure that's the idea of noose from one of his letters. With the dream, my best guess, a major medieval concept is the enclosed garden or the walled garden. And it's this kind of sacred place. We see that in the, that hideous strength when Jane first goes to St. Anne's. The allegory of love, one of the main images in these love allegories was the walled garden, which represents the, the heart or the, the soul of the, the beloved woman. So it's partly, I think it has to be the fact that he's, uh, has to climb over the wall. When I first read this in college, it said he put his coat down to protect from the broken bottles. And I didn't know what that meant until I went to England. And these older walls, they actually take bottles and put them in the cement and break them off. So it's like their form of barbed wire. Mm -hmm. My best guess was after his adventures on Malacandra, he's going to be a citizen of the field of Arbol, the solar system. He's no longer going to be just a citizen of Earth. And so he's half in and half out when he's hanging on the wall and one part's cold and one part's not. And it comes up again in Paralandra when he lands. He's been in this translucent coffin and part of his body gets sunburned and part doesn't. 
So uh, the uh, green lady calls him piebald because he's kind of dappled. He's got one light side and one dark, dark side. And that whole novel, he struggles between obeying Maleldil and feeling angry that he's been given this mission, which is way over his head. Finally, when he decides that he needs to fight Weston, he notices that his dappled appearance has disappeared. So my theory is it has to do with his being almost like the uh, the old Adam versus the person who submitted to Christ, that he's going to be a, a dual citizen of the heavens and of earth, and he's going to struggle with that for the, the next three novels or the next two novels. But that's only my guess. I can't find a letter where he will nail down for me why he put in that dream sequence. So uh, I, I will let you and your friends uh, speculate all you want because I don't have a definitive <laughs> answer to that one. Well, what you said there was very similar to what I said, so I'm just going to assume that that was correct. <laughs> As we near the end of our time together, I just want to talk more generally about the book. What is it that you think that we should be paying attention to as we read through the book? And what should we be attending to as we follow Ransom on his adventures to, again, to get the most out of it that we possibly can? Well, I think one dimension not to neglect is to see this trilogy as Ransom's spiritual journey. Uh, it's a cosmic voyage, is a spiritual journey. A lot of times the protagonists are rather flat. When John Carter goes to Marge, he's pretty much John Carter at the beginning and John Carter at the end. And there's nothing wrong with that for some fiction, which is primarily for entertainment. But uh, Ransom is from a fallen world, and he has a lot of anxieties. Uh, he's, when he gets kidnapped, of course, he's very anxious about being carried off to a different world. Uh, but he's worried about meeting the Martians. He finally meets the Harasa, and he's reassured that they're, they're good creatures. In fact, they're admirable creatures. But then he gets anxious all over again about meeting the Sorns, uh, which I think for Lewis is kind of his image of the boogeyman. And then he gets anxious all over again about having an audience with Oyarsa. Every single time, he's on an unfallen planet. So his, his uh, apprehensions tend to be overblown because his imagination has been spoiled by being <laughs> growing up in a fallen planet. So, And this continues in Paralandra and somewhat in that hideous strength. So I would tell readers, don't neglect to pay attention to this as Ransom's spiritual journey. He's kind of growing in, in maturity. Also, there's a lot of wonderful imagery. When Lewis wants you to like something, when Ransom sees the space for the first time from the ship, he says the, the moon was nowhere to be seen. He describes it as a royal tapestry, and there's all these golds and all these heraldic languages, I mean, heraldic images. So watch how often he's kind of seducing you with the idea that a medieval worldview was much more charming and glorious than the <laughs> modern worldview. There's another word to add to your our Lewis lexicon, which is heraldy or heraldic. Mm -hmm. He loved the vivid colors and the just the uh, timeless icons of the lions and the unicorns and the swords and the shields. And in Paralandra, when he first meets this dragon, dragons on earth are generally fearsome and evil, but on Paralandra, he's kind of a little pet dragon. But he says it was a heraldically colored dragon. And you immediately know that somehow that's a good thing. Same thing in uh, Great Divorce. He says a big bus came up and it was color, it had all the colors of heraldry. So I think he just wants to recapture the charm and the wonder and the glory of a medieval worldview, even if it's not accurate in a lot of details. 
it invites you to be in proper relationship with the creator of the cosmos that in a way that many people don't ever experience that intellectually or emotionally. Wonderful. Dr. David C. Downing, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. As the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell us where people can go to find out more about you and pick up a copy of Planets in Peril? Well, Planets in Peril is available from the publisher, University of Massachusetts. Uh, it's also on Amazon, and they've got an author bio if you want just a general outline of my personal history. I've not been to Malacandra or Paralandra, <laughs> except in imagination. And uh, we also have uh, all of uh, Crystal and my books at the Wade Center. If you ever get a chance to visit the Wade, we can show you some wonderful things. We can show you uh, the first draft of Letters to Malcolm, which never made it into the book. Uh, we have 2,400 of Lewis's own books, which he wrote in. So I was just reading, he was reading a book by Samuel Butler, and Butler said, uh, this is a matter of rational demonstration, not mere mystical intuition. And Lewis wrote in the margin, this man is a fool. And then he, <laughs> he defined mysticism. So yes, if you ever come to the Wade, you can get uh, discount copies of all of these books from the Wade Center. Mm. And speaking for our family, we're aiming to get there before the summer. Oh, we'd love to have you. Let us know in advance and we'll pull some treasures from, from the vault downstairs that uh, you'll enjoy seeing. Wonderful. You also have a podcast at the Wade Center. Uh, would you mind telling people what goes on there? Yes, it's, we've been going about four, uh, four years now. When uh, we first came in 2018, we would have these wonderful conversations with, with the guests that came to the Wade. Doug Gresham came, Lewis's stepson, a number of Lewis and Tolkien and Dorothy Sayers scholars. And about the fourth time I had one of these fabulous conversations, I said, somebody should be recording this. And then we have a very talented producer at the Wade Center named Aaron Hill. And he said, well, we, why don't we make it into a podcast? Just have them come in, sit, put them in front of a couple of microphones and, and save them. So uh, for about two years, we were primarily interviewing guests of the Wade. And then when COVID came, we didn't want to stop the podcast. So my wife, Crystal, and I and Aaron just started having discussions of a six-parter on Lord of the Rings, seven parts on the Narnia Chronicles. We've worked through all of Lewis's and Tolkien's major books. Now we're going to do more with uh, George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton. So it's uh, out there. It gets, I think we're over 120,000 listens in over 100 uh, countries. It's interesting to me that we get emails from Malaysia and Turkey and Kazakhstan. And often they're Christians who feel very isolated and they're trying to reach out and connect with a larger Christian community. So we enjoy that international scope to the, the podcast. We'll be going to one podcast a month starting this month. We're going to start doing uh, short videos called Wonders of the Wade, which we're going to put on YouTube. And we'll give you a close-up look of Lewis's wardrobe and Tolkien's pipe and uh, a lot of rough drafts that never made it to publication. <laughs> so that, that'll be a fun addition to uh, trying to help people. If you can't come to the Wade, we'll bring the Wade to you. That's sort of our motto. <laughs> Well, there was one more thing that I wanted to ask. We're planning on reading Surprise by Joy next season. Can you give us an update as to the timeline for the upcoming annotated edition? Well, I'm about two-thirds of the way through the annotations, and so I need to finish that. And then we're going to make it annotated and illustrated. So my colleague at the Wade, Marjorie Lant Mead, is going to pull out pictures of Warren and Jack as boys, pictures of the, uh, the schools they attended, 
he calls the Malvern College, which was like a, a what we would call a, a private high school in America. He calls it Wyvern College. And uh, last time I was at Malvern, I noticed that they have wyverns, carved wyverns in the chapel. These are like four-legged lizards. They're sort of, you know, like mini dragons. <laughs> and so I think this would be one of those annotations with a picture. You know, maybe he called it wyvern because it sounds like Malvern and because they actually have these little lizards carved into the, the roof of the chapel. So I'm about two-thirds of the way done. Once we had illustrations, we're hoping to bring it out from HarperCollins. Probably be at least a year, year and a half. These things go slowly. <laughs> I need you to do my work for me. Hurry up. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks again to Dr. Downing for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening, all of our Patreon supporters, especially our top tier supporters, Matt, Jake, James, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gimbley, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for all of our listeners and all of the prayer requests on our Slack channel every Tuesday. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please pick up a copy of Planets in Peril and do a study with somebody that you like talking to. And please join us again next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.